you're listening to the Chill Spot Radio. Mental health, especially amongst people of color, has long been stigmatized, inadvertently keeping our people from accessing and reaching mental well-being. This podcast aims to transform stigma into strength. Your hosts work in the mental health field, bearing in their experience within the mental health profession. We thank you for your time in this brave space. You're listening to the Chill Spot Radio. Uh, this is episode three, and this is uh, your host, Jared Morgan, and my co-host. This is Dr. Alan Lipscomb. Welcome yeah. back. Yeah, and today we're going to be talking about um, continuation from uh, the last episode and talking about trauma and how to heal from the trauma um, of police violence, uh, brutality, and uh, the systemic racism that we're experiencing now. Um, so last week, or yeah, a week and a half ago, you were talking about um, how family um, is also really impacted by uh, the brutality, police brutality. Um, and so we know that George Floyd's brother um, was there and witnessed it. And now um, since then, we've had the uh, murder of uh, Rayshard Brooks, um, who has four children uh, and a wife. And, um, you know, they're also going to be experiencing a lot of trauma from this. Um, and mm-hmm. What can families, how can families heal? How can sons, daughters, wives, husbands, uh, parents, um, brothers and sisters heal when they lose a member of their family um, in this way? Especially when there's, a very, previously there's a lot of lack of justice. Um, yeah. This might be different for some of the families now because of this uh, civil unrest, we might see some justice served, but beforehand we didn't. Yeah, and, and that's a big thing that you're you're bringing up. A huge component to the healing process is no longer being exposed to the trauma, no longer being traumatized, right? Mm-hmm. And so that being said, we can't fully heal. An individual, a family, et cetera, can't fully heal until it has stopped, right? Until there's no more police trauma, police-induced trauma on Black bodies, right? And so what I have come up with to to best understand what this looks like is we get to heal enough, Mm. right? We can't fully heal, but we get to heal enough to keep going, to keep living, to keep encouraging, loving, and supporting each other. And so... How we begin to heal enough is like what we're doing today is having conversations about it, mm-hmm. is validating the experiences and the traumas, holding space for the loved ones mm-hmm. of the individual who has been murdered, who has died as a result of police-induced race-based trauma. And so healing looks like that, healing enough to keep going, healing enough to see that there's going to be justice, to see that there's going to be change. And so keeping their names alive, keeping their memory alive, talking about them, honoring them is how we heal enough as it relates to this particular trauma. Well, uh, I like how you say enough, um, almost as though it's clear that we can't ever get to that other side of 100% healing. Until it stops, yeah. Mm-hmm. Until until it ceases, ceases to exist, and and that's why 
we need everyone at the table. We need everyone doing things, not just protests, not just having conversations, but we need some radical um, changes to occur, to happen, to fully stop this. Because again, we won't be able to fully heal if we continue to see and be exposed in our own experiences, um, having to, to witness this and succumb to this. And it, it makes me think about uh, outside of the just police brutality, but in, in low socioeconomic neighborhoods, um, kids repeatedly see violence, even if it's um, not police on citizen violence, but just, um, you know, neighbor on neighbor violence. And it just kind of continues that cycle. And so they're never able to really heal from what they're witnessing if the whole idea is the it has to disappear to be able to to fully heal yeah there well, there needs to be accountability right there there needs to be accountability and that's the part that is painful is when there is no accountability mm. right when when police officers are able to do what they do and mm. there's no accountability there's no change change that that, that occurs as, as a result of what happened. Well, generally there's also a justification for what they did by looking at our background and saying that we were criminals already or we smoked Correct. weed. Correct, so then that justifies, right, mm -hmm. what happens. So then it erases or it attempts to erase the, the wound that was felt, right? The impact that it had mm -hmm. on the families, the individuals, and I think the other thing around healing enough is the truth, is what we're touching on, the truth of what happened. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't because this person, um, you know, they like to paint the picture of their past history with mm -hmm. law enforcement or whatever, corrections. But the truth is what actually happened, what actually occurred, and the recognition of that. Mm -hmm. And not trying to, you know, sweep it under the rug and, and dismiss the behaviors. And naming what we are seeing and what we are experiencing when we don't talk about race and racism, when we don't talk about institutional racism, systemic uh, racism and oppression, then we're not, we're not truly healing, are we? Because then we're not naming the wound. We're not naming what actually happened. We're beating around the bush. Um, Strategically, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's strategic. Yeah, very much. So then, how do communities really then heal? Because when you say healing enough, I, I, I have to imagine that there's repercussions or side effects to only getting to a certain point. Um, otherwise, you know, when somebody's murdered, you know, we usually see um, outcry. We see a lot of discussion about it. It's on the news. The family has the uh, funeral paid for, you know, glorify that person um and so I, I would assume there's some healing that comes with that but you know then what happens because oftentimes we don't see a major change in that family so i'm assuming they don't heal um, no I, I, no I, I think that's the injustice too is that the grief is never truly processed there's no mm -hmm. true bereavement process that's the misbereavement right because there's no space for it. There's no recognition, there's no credence for it. So 
you know, once everything has subsided and there's no longer media coverage, et cetera, then the families are still wounded. They're still left with, with the unresolved issues at hand that no one addressed. And so we see their passion. We see them keeping their story alive and their name alive. But no, you cannot 100% fully heal when you can't truly 100% grieve and have a bereavement process. And, and, and for our listeners, can you break down the grieving process for us? Because there are steps to it. Sure. I mean, you know, grief, while Kubler-Ross talks about this, there are stages that one can go through, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and they're not step-by-step, step, kind of I go through the anger, then I go through denial, then I go through bargaining, acceptance, depression, et cetera. Um, but those are the common stages, if you will, that folks tend to go through. Mm-hmm. And so it doesn't always look that neat, too. Right. Many times it doesn't look like that neat. You know, grief is all over the place. The feelings come up and down. They hit you. Uh, you can be 20 years post, you know, the uh, your loved one has died, you know, 20 years ago. And it, the grief can be so fresh still right. um, as a result of that. And so grief is the conflicting feelings that come with the end of or change to a familiar pattern or behavior, right? Mm-hmm. And so the conflicting feelings that come with that is grief. And allowing those feelings is part of the grief process, but also that process is your bereavement process, right? Mm -hmm. So dealing with those conflicting feelings, talking about it, uh, getting support around it, recognition, that's the bereavement process. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I've said this before, we, with this type of trauma, have been bereft of a bereavement experience. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Right. We've been robbed of that. Mm-hmm. Right. We we don't get that. Right. It's always shortened by something else, you know, or we move on to the next thing. And that's what I'm hoping. I'm hoping that doesn't happen with this. Right. I, I hope that we can stay on what has been happening to black bodies, black men, black women, black trans women, black trans men, etc is this injustice and i hope that we don't try to move the conversation too quickly to something else or to another group because in order for it to truly change we need to stay with it mm-hmm. and i'm not saying that we cannot do this for other groups and because we can but i think what gets lost sometimes is that we move on too quickly right and we need to stay with it well it's really uncomfortable to sit in those feelings by yourself uh-huh. It is. And I think for other populations, ethnicities, too, it highlights for them the injustices within their own community, too, that's happening. Right? Mm-hmm. And so there's a recognition, like, wait a minute. There's injustices here that's happening. Right. And so attention needs to be there, rightfully so. But I just hope that, that the coalition can stay together yeah. to focus on this, and then we can focus on other things. Mm. Because then it becomes the oppression Olympics. Yeah. Right? And, and then we start, well, well, we, we don't see this, and well, we are discriminated against too, and, and then now we have to defend. 
Right. Now, notice how we're moving away from the healing. Mo notice how we're moving away from the true bereavement process, right? Mm -hmm. So now I have to situate myself differently and position myself differently to respond to what's being said, moving, moving the conversation away. And um, you, you, I know you do groups um, with, with teens and um, you do a lot of stuff around uh, black male grief. What, um, what are your views on support groups and, and, and dealing with the grief process? and how us as black people and people of color might be missing out on some of that healing? I think support groups are great. I think it is beneficial to bring folks together who are experiencing the same feelings um, and, and symptoms. I think it can bring about some uh, validation, some affirmations around the felt experience. Uh, I, I think that a lot of the virtual group spaces that I'm seeing and a part of, I think has been great. Yeah. Um, and I love that they are not therapeutic in nature or in advertising, but they have that therapeutic healing kind of engagement, which goes back to your point in this particular question regarding why not a lot of folks go to those groups or, or take advantage. I, there's a shift we're seeing because uh, the group in its advertising of the different types of group is not saying like counseling group, psychotherapy group, right. but it's just like healing space, processing, uh, brotherhood, et cetera. And I think that's appealing and that's helpful. I, I, that, I love it. And I mean, you already know that I love support groups because um, I feel like I bring them up all the time. Um, and I think that yeah, that that's that's the best entrance into getting into um, our communities of color, um, because therapy and counseling is so taboo. Yeah. <laughs> that when we talk about just groups and talking, and kind of mask it with some psychoeducation, then it uh, it allows them to experience um, this kind of place of healing, and then yeah. it's so not taboo anymore. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I think about when we talk about healing in groups and, and things like that, I think healing is about holding and honoring each other, holding space for one another mm -hmm. and honoring each other's experiences and truth, right? Right. Without trying to, to take over. I think it, it healing encompasses engaging in difficult conversations and dialogue, mm -hmm. right? We have to go there. Um, it also entails affirming each other and affirming our, our emotional experiences as well as our physical, right, felt experiences that we're having. And then the final piece around healing is listening to self, right? Mm -hmm. Listening to what's coming up for us, mind, body, and spirit, and then moving in such a way that allows us to not only be authentic to ourselves, but to ensure that we are moving in a way that honors who we are and honors our lineage and our ancestral connections too. Right. Right. Well, before I ask you more about that, because I find that to be really interesting, I, I, what are some of some negative side effects of 
swallowing your grief or being bereaved of our bereavement? Uh, what are some things that people would experience, feelings they might be feeling um, so that, you know, someone listening to this could identify maybe them recognizing that, oh man, I have some trauma I have not. Sure, sure. And I think we, we've touched on some of these symptoms before that might overlap with some of the previous episodes, but I think the activation, <clears throat> being triggered, being activated, being on edge, um, being sad, um, which is not always depression, right? But it could be, right? Um, not wanting to get out of bed, not wanting to go out of the house, not wanting to take care of hygiene, right? Things like that. Now we're getting into depression territory with, with all of those components. Uh, the other thing that could happen is paranoia, right? So you haven't shared and expressed this, you feel like you're the only one feeling this way. So then you start exhibiting paranoid like thinking, right? And, and how you're moving um, day to day and, and questioning. Or you start self-medicating with substances and alcohol. Mm. That could be other ways to try to escape and numb the grief and numb the pain. And it makes me think of a lot of times of uh, people in our community waking up and smoking. Mm -hmm. stay high all day and it's kind of glorified sometimes but um thinking of that being the self-medicating that you know we hear about a lot yeah especially coupled with COVID in the time that we're in with COVID right mm -hmm. I was just in a session um, a moment ago and the person that I was having a session with was saying it's hard to look forward to things right now mm-hmm like it's it's hard to envision something outside of here, right. something outside of this moment, because there's a lot going on. And I think this is where people's faith becomes important. Mm -hmm. This is where resiliency becomes important. And I'm not saying that in a in a loose kind of a way or in this kind of magical kind of way. I'm saying that in a way to ground oneself. Right in what will come following this, mm -hmm. right? And I think for those who have gone through stuff, and this is probably for like older generations who have experienced some stuff, they know, right? They know that it's gonna get better. And for those who are grounded in their spiritual connections, et cetera, religion, et cetera, they also know within their faith that there are brighter days that are coming, mm -hmm. right? Beyond this. But folks can get lost in not having that as protective factors, mm -hmm. right? To, to gravitate to, to hold on, to harness themselves to during this time of still uncertainties, during this time of um, racial injustices that, that are happening. Mm -hmm. and, and let me throw you like a little curveball here. Question. So we're grieving, sorry, while, you, while you're formulating that question. Mm -hmm. So we're grieving multiple things. So this is complex grief, right? Right. We're not just grieving what's happening, murders to black bodies. We're not just grieving COVID-19 and, you know, the shakeup that, it, that is done in our normal day functioning, but grieving like the loss of possibilities, et cetera, for some folks. Go ahead. So then... What about somebody who comes from a low socioeconomic community 
And when, for our listeners, when I say that, that's something that we use a lot, a uh, proper term in social work, but, you know, I have a wide range of individuals listening to this, you know, that, you know, more common, maybe known as like the ghetto or poverty or the hood. And uh, if someone is raised there, then you, you have this um, heightened awareness and civil unrest because of police brutality and COVID going on. And they may have already been living in depression or having a a lot of sadness because their future was uh, bleak um, because of uh, where they live um, and, you know, family struggling maybe. What what solutions do you have for someone like that? And, And what kind of healing can be done in that? in that regard i think for them and and i'm not i i I hope folks don't receive this as i'm over generalizing right but i think for them within the within this experience they've been grinding before covid Mm -hmm. they've been having to to rub some stuff together to make it work to make it happen and so in that 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 coping has become their protective factor, that grinding continue to do in order to survive. So they're they're feeling this in a different way because they've are, are always been struggling, right? They've always been grinding. And I think what that's gonna do in their journey, it's gonna keep them going and motivate them to be at a point of success where they can provide, where they can, you know, give back to their community, et cetera. Mm-hmm. I think their healing is gonna come from not only processing what's happening, but also being able to stay connected to their community and helping their community. I think that's gonna help them with their, with their healing process mm. too. Um, I, I think they're, they're feeling the pain, they're seeing the pain for sure, but I also think that they're able to experience this differently because the struggle was there before COVID. Mm. Well, you know, as a social worker, that kind of gives me some hope, knowing that maybe this didn't push some of our patients and communities that we work with, like, you know, too far back. And then, you know, we're kind of like having to do five steps back and then having to do all that work all over again. So you're saying their, their level of resilience, given what they've dealt with prior to all of this is kind of hasn't changed much in that regard for well i I think it could help Mm -hmm. i think it could help i I think there are it's nuanced right i think there are folks who are floundering as a result of covid in lower economic communities for sure i think there are folks who are experiencing abuse you know as a result of covid physical abuse sexual abuse emotional abuse as a result of covid i think folks uh, are experiencing homelessness differently mm-hmm. because of COVID. So I think that is happening for sure. But I also think that we cannot underestimate those who have that grit and that grind to continue to do that have already been feeling struggle before this. And so they knew how to get food because yeah. food insecurity was already happening. They mm-hmm. knew how to still try to make some money and hustle, you know, through social media or whatever, uh, trying to make some side money. Like they, they already were doing this mm-hmm. before. So I think that's the piece that we have to be mindful of 
mm -hmm. and support that and support those skills to continue to get them at a place where they can continue to thrive and be successful right. in the future. And uh, going back to uh, spirituality, yeah. um, and I forgot where you left off with that before I drove us off onto this. I, I, I was talking about how that is a protective factor and people can really gravitate to their faith mm -hmm. and, and their spiritual practices and religion um, to, to help them foresee the future, right, right, a brighter right. day. Um, well, I mean, it's really no surprise that religion is and spirituality is a huge protective factor within the African-American and Latino and next communities. Um, is there a reason why, you know, their church, quote unquote, hasn't necessarily saved us and how we could better utilize spirituality in helping us cope and overcome. What do we mean, save us? Um, well, very much that we see um, churches remaining in certain areas, um, but we don't, they don't necessarily, um, always provide like a, um, a success story for some of our, our patients or people that we see. Um, that, you know, churches go into certain communities to, to provide, to uplift them, but the community continues to stay where it is. And I'm not like overgeneralizing, I'm just thinking of um, my family, my grandfather was a pastor at uh, Bethel AME in South LA and um, the neighborhood is very much depressed. And, um, you know, no matter, or no matter how much money is pumped into the church um, and whether it grows or not, the community stays depressed. Um, individuals continue being depressed, yet the, the spirituality and, is so strong for them and it, it is a protective factor but um you know it hasn't really led to much change mm. I, I think <clears throat> when the church is not when they don't embrace and promote mental wellness mm. and mental health mm -hmm. I think they miss a great opportunity to validate, like you said, depression and de being depressed um, within the community. I think there are many churches that are doing this, that are talking about mental health in, in the community. <clears throat> but I think it's important that pastors, bishops, reverends, et cetera, they really promote within their congregation um, accessing mental health support, um, providing mental health support within the church as well with mental health providers, right? Providing that type of support within the community. Um, I think that will help uh, the church move in a direction towards embracing mental health and me mental illness in, in general sphere mental illness as well. But 
I think for some of these larger churches, like these mega churches, I think looking at their role and responsibility within their communities who they're servicing, I think there's, there, there needs to be continued conversations and dialogue around what action looks like, right? right? What, what actual work looks like, right? With, with the, within their community and outside and surrounding their, their actual physical space of worship. Well, any more um, to say on, you know, some other things that you've seen going on um, in I, I, this community it, during this time? Yeah, I, I think what we're seeing is, specifically among African Americans, um, is reclaiming our healing, mm. is really trying to push forward change so that we can move forward as, as, as a people and we don't have to experience this any longer. I think it's gonna take some time for sure. I think also our allies have been a great component of this and proponent of, of pushing this forward, which is great. It, 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 the irony is they had to see it in a different way to believe it and, and shake, shake up, right? Wake up and shake up in a different way um, to get it. Oh, yeah. and, I, and I think that's that's what I'm also seeing as yeah, a result we, of this. We talk a lot about that in the macro social work about uh, how you bring about social change, um, and the you have to have a social problem. And if you know our, the white supremacy or Caucasians don't see it as a problem, then we're not most likely not going to get that social change to happen. Um, and so uh, police brutality was just seen as that those are specific cases because they had this background and this person may have deserved to, you know, blah, 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 right. until they saw the video of George Floyd begging for his life. And then it's like, oh, snap, there is police brutality. And I think what was different with this one, because we, we saw Eric Garner doing the same thing. We saw right. Philandro Castillo, right? I think what was different this time around is that you got to see the officer's face. So not only did you see George dying, but you also saw him not flinching. Yep. Right? So you got to see the juxtaposition between someone taking someone's life and someone just as if it's nothing with a knee on the neck. And I think that shook people up in a different way. And I think the duration of time, right? Yeah. The eight, the eight minutes and 40 odd seconds, I think that also was excessive for folks this time around. Yeah. And I think uh, that shifted for, for folks this time around. Like I said, I still have not seen the video, but I went to a, a protest to, took my daughter to one two weeks ago. And nice. I, um, you know, a lot of people have been kneeling and then they, they read, the, throughout the eight minutes and 40 odd seconds, they're reading um, what George Floyd was saying. And um, I'll be honest, uh, I was getting real shaky. Um, luckily, sure. my daughter too couldn't sit for very long. So I ended up having to chase after her, which was a bit of a relief to not have to sit there for another four minutes to, to listen to it. It really tears you up. Um, 
and really, um, I, I mean, I'm sad that it had to get to that point for it to become a real for sure problem, but or to um, seen as a social problem by some. But yeah, um, we talk about this a lot. Um, and um, 521, 645 um, is utilizing uh, media and, and things to help um, mostly Caucasians see what's going on because when you activate them, you know, they really are the ones that help push this along. And it's been nice to see them out there marching alongside um, people of color. Sure. Just as outrageous. And I think it would, that same incident with uh, Chris Cooper and uh, what's her name, Amy Cooper in the Central Park. Mm -hmm. um, when you got to hear her words come out um, about identifying him as an African-American male who's threatening her. Mm -hmm. um, a black man, yeah, definitely. Really paints the picture of what happens out there. Mm -hmm. And that's the important thing too, if we, if we can go back to the ally, allyship and what that looks like, it's, it's what happens when we're not around what's being said and how our allies showing up in those spaces mm -hmm. and then importantly what happens when we are around and you're seeing racial injustices happening right in front of you so i think what this is doing too is it is pushing it beyond just recording the incident right and i think i talked about this the last episode it's interrupting and disrupting what we're actually seeing take place mm. right so it's not enough now just to record it. Like that was like the beginning. The right. initial phase was like, we, people were recording. Now it's not just recording, it's doing something about it too. I think that's what we're gonna see as a result of this. And we've been seeing it since then. Yeah, I've seen a couple of videos of uh, cops, partners informing their other, or their partner to release the chokehold. Yeah. I think a cop just was let go this morning or today from uh, an incident over the weekend in New York again. Uh, he had an individual in a chokehold and knocked him out cold. Um, yeah. But just like that same thing. It's I don't understand where that disconnect is, but it's there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's through, it's through training and it's through implicit bias and it's through years and years and years of uh, systems of oppression, institutional racism, all of that. And you teach classes on it and um, um, implicit bias, don't you? I do, yeah, I do trainings around mm, that. Yeah, yeah, trainings looking at uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice within organizations. And, and one of the components of that is looking at implicit bias mm. and how that shows up and how to be aware of it. And just like a, without giving us the whole training, uh, what does someone do when they recognize as an implicit bias, bias within themselves? Yeah, I think you get to change your behavior. You get to change your actions in that moment, mm -hmm. right? And so you're aware that how you are feeling and how you are thinking is rooted in your, your biases, right? That happens automatically. So you get to slow yourself down to change your action, to change your behavior to begin to correct it. I think that be becomes important. And um, quickly, quickly explain if you can implicit bias. 
case somebody here doesn't know what it is. Sure. Implicit bias is when we have a, pre a prejudice towards an individual or a group of people uh, based on how they look. Um, it is through rapid association. It's unconscious. It's triggered automatically. Um, it operates at all levels. So it's not just an individual thing. We also see it promoted and supported within healthcare, human services, education systems as well. Right. So yeah. the example I like to use is I get a different treatment when I walk into a space, be it an organization, be it a classroom, be it a training, when people know who I am. Mm -hmm. Right. So when people know this is Dr. Alan Lipscomb, I get a different level of treatment. Mm -hmm. When people don't know who I am and I walk into those same spaces, be it education, be it agencies, institutions, I get a different level of treatment being a black male without the title because right. they don't know. Right. Mm -hmm. And so what's a part of that is implicit biases. Mm -hmm. That's a component of, of the level of treatment and the reactions that I get that they're not even consciously aware of because it happens so quickly and they move right through it, as opposed to what I was saying a moment ago, taking a pause, taking mm -hmm. a beat before um, that happens. I really see implicit bias on the airplane when I'm flying. Really? Yes, through uh, flight attendants. I see how they respond to other passengers, especially if they are white passengers. Huh. Like, who gets an extra pillow without asking a blanket, right? Who gets mm -hmm. an extra snack beverage without asking, right? And I, I, I'm not searching for it, but how it comes to my attention is they get offered it. And I'm like, oh, I wonder if they're going to ask me the same thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and w w without a doubt, it doesn't happen. I don't get the same level of, of treatment. So I notice implicit bias very much so on the airplane because I'm just a brother traveling on the airplane. Unless I'm, unless I'm in first class, like I'm balling out of control, right? Um, then I will get my drinks and I will get the extra pillow, et cetera. Uh, but other than that, if I'm in coach, it's a different type of treatment. But again, regardless of being in coach, I still see how implicit bias uh, shows up. And now correct me if I'm wrong, because I, there is something to implicit biases. I, I mean, when you go into the primal part of our brain, it's for, for protection. Sure. For sure. Um, you know, we group things together. And so you knew that an animal on four legs that may not be a lion, but looks similar for to sure. a lion, could probably tear you up. But what what is it that does it to us in regards to ethnicity and other humans? Um, what value. Mm. We value and we treat people different. And so there's a different level of treatment if you look, right, exactly. like a white male. If you look like a white woman, right, you get a different value. Your life is valued in a different way. So mm -hmm. the way they engage with you is different. I remember um, my wife and I, we went to Florida. We went to Miami, Florida. Wow, this was many years ago um, uh, for our anniversary. And we stayed at a nice, you know, we, we were going to check in at a nice hotel. And we arrived early. So we went by the pool. And then, you know, we checked our bags. We went by the pool. And then we went to the lobby. And we just hung out at the lobby and was waiting for our room to be ready. And, you know, we were laying down, you know, falling asleep, et cetera, there in the lobby. And I remember a, a, a staff member came to us and said, they don't want homeless people sleeping here. Wow. Now, let me just let me just say this. Okay, let me let me just 
say this. I'm on vacation. And so when I'm on vacation, I'm thinking I'm fly. I'm thinking I'm dressing like I'm on vacation. And so I don't think that someone would think that I look <laughs> like I am experiencing homelessness. I would think they would, I would look like somebody who's on vacation, right? Mm -hmm. So that was implicit bias, right? So there was an assumption that was made automatically and trying to get rid of, not knowing that we are guests of the hotel or soon to be guests of the hotel. So you know that went that went very fun. Um, needless to say, we did not end up staying there. Um, but that's the type of value and stuff that I'm talking about. Right. Um, and so, yeah. Which I mean, we get from passed down from parents, grandparents, uh, media. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think of when I think about it, I always think about Trayvon Martin. In the hoodie. Yeah, me too. I do too. Yeah. Yeah, always. And then it was just, it's strictly implicit bias that got him killed. Yeah. Yeah. All of that. So it changes how you move, right? It impacts how you move as a, as a Black person. Well, um, thank you, thank you for that today. Um, very informative, and um, we now have our website, uh, chillspotradio.com. Check um, it out. Yeah, changed it up a little bit from Chillspot Podcast is Chillspot Radio. Um, and you can find uh, information on myself and Dr. Lipsco. Um, we might uh, link it to our social media and uh, link it to some of uh, your articles, if you're okay with that, for people to be able to explore. Yeah, and also I'll probably link it to my bio, too. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, so thank you for listening to Chill Spot Radio today, and uh, we'll see you next time. All right, take care, everyone. Thank you for listening to Chill Spot Radio. Remember to subscribe to our podcast on our webpage at chillspotradio.com.